Looking at the passage this morning, here's two questions we're going to ask going into this. First of all, have I been, have you been born again? That's verse 9 of chapter 3. And the second one is, who is your father? So let's look at chapter 3, verse 9. And it says this. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning. Because he has been born of God. What is he saying? It's pretty clear. No one who has been born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? Because God's seed abides in him. Now, what does he mean by God's seed? He means exactly what you would think he means by that. God has placed his DNA spiritually. He has placed it in us, and that's where the new life comes from. It is not derived from you. You can't generate new life in yourself, okay? I, I mean, to be quite honest, the, the, the Greek word here is, is literally for seed, is sperma, is the word, okay? God has placed His DNA in our lives, in the lives of a believer. They have been born again because they have been given new life that does not, de- it did not derive from their own DNA. Our DNA is broken, is fallen, is is wicked, is our hearts are are dead towards God. We have no hope apart from God doing a like a stem cell transplant and putting some healthy good cells that have not been affected by sin and placing them in us and that's where life begins to explode in us and we become a new person. That's what that passage is saying. I mean, how can it be more clear? How amazing for this to be written 2,000 years ago, and they didn't even understand the depth of the science behind this. And yet, this is the truth. God has placed in us something that that we were infertile. We were un- unable to bring about life. We were unable to generate a spirituality that honored God, to live a life that was that was God-honoring, that was holy, that, that could go to heaven. We could go to heaven with that life. And God has given that to us, gifted that to us. He said, well, what, what did I do to get it? Nothing. He just responded in repentance and faith. It's our response to God's gift. God has gifted us with something that we could not generate. We're dead. He gave us life. They're born again. And so it says in verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. So because now... You have God's DNA, stem cell, whatever. You've got this new life in you. The evidence of that is, is going to be somebody who does not keep on sinning. They don't sin um, and keep on. They don't make a practice of sinning and they don't keep on sinning. Because God has imparted a spiritual life in them. Resulting in a deep, radical, inward transformation. It's interesting. I, Janet and I had an opportunity to talk to a, a friend we haven't seen in a long time it's a, a guy it's a pastor pastor wife that have been uh, serving god faithfully for 30 or 40 something years i don't know a long time he said you know what's really becoming a reality to me walking with jesus knowing god is not just about jesus changing us when we become a christian but it's about transformation 
after you become a Christian, you continue this process of being transformed and being changed. And I'm like, yeah, that's the gospel. It's not just the beginning point. It's what we grow in. It's not just how you start. It's not the diving board. It's the pool, as we talk about here. It's the whole thing. Jesus has saved us and he's saving us. It's not just justification, but it's sanctification of us being conformed to the image of Christ. And part of me is like, awesome, you get that. And part of me is like, how, why are you just now getting this? In his defense, I, this is where we have failed, I think, because we have forgotten the gospel. We've talked about before, uh, the first generation neglects the gospel, the second generation forgets the gospel, and the third generation denies the gospel. And, and we have forgotten these things. Man, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he's been born of God. Jesus is changing him. And so the first question to think about is, have you been born again? The second one is, who is your father? And in verse 10, he says, by this, it is evident who are the children of God. Well, how, how do we know who's the children of God? Well, he says right here, it's evident who are the children of God. Well, how? Okay, well, those who are the children of God, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So how do we know whether somebody is a child of God or that God is their father? How do we know that? Well, two things. It's evident that they're children of God by the fact that they practice righteousness because those who do not practice righteousness are not of God, nor are those who do not love their brothers. That's the two points. Briefly, let me just highlight for you uh, the question of who is your father? Who is your daddy? Okay, how do we know who our father is? Interesting. This is really interesting. The Bible does not teach, get this, it does not teach that God is the universal father of all and we are all the children of God. Now that might be the favorite line of politicians and the maybe favorite line of hip songs, and that might be just a happy, clappy, nice little thing to say. We're all the children of God. We're all God's children. We're all The Bible really doesn't teach that. It does vaguely kind of infer in uh, Acts chapter 17 or 18, 17, verse 28, Paul's preaching to an Athens, an evangelistic kind of setting to these people that are into intellectualism and different things, and they've, they're, they're trying to, they're open to different views, but they're, they're studying all different beliefs and philosophies and, 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 to those guys, as a kind of entry point of understanding who the one true God of the Bible is, he says to them, he refers to the Bible, he refers to God as being kind of the creator of all. God has created all. So everything comes from God. So in that, God is creator God. He is the father of all in that he has caused everything to be. So that's true. Everything finds its origin in God. So that's true. In that general sense, fuzzy sense, we are all the children of God. So that, it's not completely Wrong to say everybody's a children of God in that God is the creator, initiator, beginner of all things. But he goes on in Acts 17, 28 to say, in him we have, we all live and move and have our being as some of your poets have said, for we are his offspring. Paul goes on explaining as his offspring, we should stop in our idolatry and we should no longer, um, because we are no longer with excuse and God has called us now, he says back 2,000 years ago, and it's that much more true today, to repent as we were soon be 
Jesus will soon return and judge the world. God is going to soon return and judge the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, look, in him, in God, we all live and move and have our being. In other words, we're all experiencing God's common grace and love and whatever, whether we believe in him, follow him, live for him, whatever. So, But don't take that for granted because uh, there's no excuse. God is going to come back and he's going to judge those who have surrendered to Jesus. Um, he will accept into his uh, into heaven and those who have rejected Jesus and served uh, idols and created their own versions of reality to serve and worship. Those are going to be uh, under the judgment of God through Christ. But the best at best, apart from fallen Christ, we are rebellious and wayward, lost from our creator and in need of restoration. It seems God does not want. This is interesting. God doesn't want to claim the bad behavior of those who are truly not his children. You ever been around uh, other kids that, um, I, mean, I, I mean, you know, you, all of us, our kids are perfect, right? You know, but but everybody else's kids are not perfect. You know, so it's like you, our kids were like, you know, my kids, are, my kids are good. But then you're around other kids and you ever had somebody else's kids with you or you're responsible for them and they were kind of acting out and you're just kind of like, and they're like, oh, is this your child? No, it's not. It's a distant relative's. Or I just found them driving up. Or have you ever denied that your kids were your kids? Have you done that? You ever been, you know, you're at the playground or something, your kid does something, and you're like, it's actually, this is uh, this is my um, niece or nephew, um, or this is a, a friend, or, um, you know, it's whatever. And you make up some story, right? It's, uh, evidently, God does not want to... Uh, he doesn't want to claim those who are not his because he doesn't want to have to be held responsible because his kids are going to represent his life. His kids are going to represent new life in his DNA. OK, and he doesn't want to. Uh, he makes it clear that all. Kids are not his. Everybody's not the children of God. He is not everybody's father. Only those who have repented and been born again to those who believe to them. He's given the right to become children of God. Everybody doesn't have the right to be a child of God. Get that. Well, man, we're all children of God. Actually, we're not. Everybody doesn't have a right to be children of God. Only those who have believed in Jesus get to be children of God. And if you don't believe in Jesus, you're not a child of God. Now, God loves you. God's created you. God wants you to have a relationship with Him. And you're estranged from your Father who you distantly know. He created, He started, but you've run from Him and He wants you to be restored into relationship with Him. That's true. Everybody you meet, don't don't start running into people and going, you know what, you're not. You're a child of the devil. That's what you... Just say, look, there is a father in a distant land who has come to have a right relationship with you. He's come to rescue you and he is waiting with arms open wide. And if you just repent and run towards him, I mean, he, he will meet you and he will give you new life, new name. He'll give you an inheritance. He will make you his child. You just believe in his son. You can have new life. You could be adopted into the family of God. But you, how could you be adopted into the family of God? Why would you need to be adopted into the family of God if you already are part of the family of God? But you're not. Apart from Christ, we're not in the family of God. We need to repent and believe in Jesus. And then we can become adopted into the family. We don't start that way. Here's how he describes humanity apart from Adoption into the family of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. For our new birth, we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once 
lived in the passions of our flesh. Again, you were not born a Christian in a Christian family and you just grew up into Christ. You were born dead in your transgressions and your sin. You were born following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of this of the air, which is the devil, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Naturally, that's who we were, which is why we need the DNA of God transplanted in us, because we were by nature, naturally, we're children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We need intervention by God. So the family descriptions in Ephesians 2 are two phrases, sons of disobedience and the children of wrath. And so if you want to describe those apart from God, they're sons of disobedience, children of wrath. Other places, Jesus even calls the Pharisees. Jesus tells the Pharisees that they are of their father, that you are you are of your father, the devil. Jesus tells the Israelite. Jewish Pharisees, religious leaders and teachers that they are of their father, the devil. If they weren't children of God, then how could people who don't even know hardly anything and care anything about God, how could they be in some any general sense children of God? They're not. We have to be adopted into the family. We need new life. We have to become. So are you a child of God? Who is your father? Those who are children of God, they are not practicing unrighteousness. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The second thing is those who are children of God love their brothers. And that's where he goes, and that's where we're going to spend the last few minutes after the long introduction and background of this. Let me give you these next few verses, uh, verses 11 through 18. First of all, verse 11, we know that love is commanded of those who follow Christ, those who have new life in them, those who have a new DNA, those who have been adopted into the family. What is going to be evident in their life is love, because love is a is a commandment. It is it is a uh, it is a fruit of a genuine new life and genuine relationship with God through Jesus Christ is going to be a supernatural love. It's going to be a supernatural Love. We have uh, love is essential. It says in verse 11, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. So love is essential. It's been this is not a new thing. This is from the beginning. Love is a big deal. It's essential. Secondly, it's also personal that we would love one another. That's an interesting thought. You know, love is not an impersonal, internal feeling. It's a verb expressed through unconditional affection, care, pleasure, delight in and towards other people. Love is not just some fuzzy feeling. Love is an unconditional commitment verb. It's a verb expressing affection, care, pleasure toward other people. Love is is an action word. It's not just internal fuzzies. It's action-oriented. It's essential. It's personal. It's directed towards people. That's what love is. That can be directed towards yourself, self-love. 
But that's not really God's kind of love. That's that's your father is the devil love. And when we love ourselves more than anybody else, that's not a good love. That's actually Satanism is that's the chief commandment of Satanism is just love yourself. Do what you want. Love yourself. That's it. So love is essential. Love is personal. We have this commandment. We're commanded to love. But then secondly, um, love could be contradicted. So love contradicted. What does that look like? Well, verse 11 through 13, he says, or 12 through 13, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. So his father was the devil, and he murdered his brother. This is Genesis chapter 4. Is the story of Cain and Abel. And it says, why did he murder him, his brother? Why did he, what did he murder, literally slaughter, butcher his brother? Why, why would he do that? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. He murdered his brother, not because he was a murderer, but because he had a murderous heart. You know, his, his deeds exposed his heart. He was self-righteous. He was a self-made man. He was focused on his, himself and he gave God um, he brought an offering of gar- his gardens to God all the stuff that he had produced and made he brought that to God he had plenty other stuff and he brought a portion of it to God and God said no no I'm not accepting that but he did accept Abel's offering which was an offering of blood it was the first um, of his flock it was the best it was a perfect um, animal he brought it to God and sacrificed it and gave its life up as a sacrifice to God. It's the picture of a blood sacrifice. If we come to God with our works and our efforts and our achievements, He's not impressed. But when we come to God with repentance and we come trusting in the the, the death and the righteousness and the goodness of another, Jesus specifically, then God is pleased with that. And And that was the problem. Abel comes with humility and surrenderedness, knowing he doesn't deserve the love of God, forgiveness of God, a relationship with God. And he comes humbly. But Cain evidently comes self-righteously and with hatred in his heart. And so he looks at his father, his brother, and instead of adjusting and going, you know what? I'm going to learn from Abel. I'm going to come repentantly to the father with humility. He doesn't do that. Instead of repenting and, and, and being restored to the father, he just eliminates the competition. And he says, you know what? I'm just going to get rid of my brother and then that way I'll look righteous. I, he makes me look unrighteous. And so instead of dealing with my unrighteousness, I'll just kill him and then I'll look better. Isn't that what we always do? It's like, it's not, my problem is not me. My problem is them. I mean, I'm not perfect, but if, if we just get rid of these other people, then I would be, I, I would be a lot better of a Christian. I, I would do better loving people if people around me weren't so unlovable. Think about that. Well, the reality is what we need is to change our heart. We need God to change our hearts. If we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, murdered his brother. So here's what uh, here's what we learn from this. Uh, hatred reveals one's father. You really want to know who you are? Is there hatred and anger, bitterness in your heart towards other people? That is indicative of who your father is. OK, uh, secondly, it reveals the world, reveals one's father. We don't want to be like Cain, who was of the evil one. Uh, secondly, verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. Why? Because hatred is indicative of 
of the devil and indicative of those who don't know Christ, and it's going to be indicative of the world. A characteristic of the world is going to be hatred towards what is good, what is right, what is holy. The world is going to hate what is good, right, and holy because it's offensive, because it makes them look bad. They don't like Abel's running around who live for God by faith in the blood of Christ. And so they hate Abel's. Instead of dealing with their own hearts, they're going to attack those who expose and make them feel, expose their wickedness and make them feel unrighteous. And so don't be surprised if the world hates you, brothers. We do not. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So it reveals one's father. It reveals the world. It also reveals one's heart. Here's how we know we've passed from life to death. Because we love our brothers. Whoever does not, does not abide in does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So hatred reveals one's heart. It reveals one's heart. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Again, Jesus made this abundantly clear in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. When he said, look, if you look on a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. If you look at a person, you have anger in your heart towards them, then you're a murderer. They said, well, we don't murder. We follow the Ten Commandments. We've loved God with all our heart, mind, soul. We've, we've never murdered. We've never stolen. We've never done this. We've never done that. Whatever. And Jesus was like, yeah, no, you have. No, we haven't. We've, re- I have never killed somebody. Okay. Have you ever hated somebody? Yeah. But I never did anything about it. No, you, you still are murder. I mean, it's the same deal. It's the same. I mean, obviously, the consequences are a little different. Okay, you know, hatred towards somebody is not as hurtful to that person usually as murdering somebody. That's a little more hurtful to the person, right? Okay, so the consequences are different. I mean, if it's internal and nobody knows about it, I mean, yeah, it doesn't affect everybody in the same way. Whereas if you're to kill somebody, that is going to have a little bit of an f- effect on the community and on your, you know, your relationships that are connected. Right? That's not gonna. That's going to be. A little difficult to overcome. Nonetheless, they're both coming from the same source, the same seed. They're both birthed out of the same sin. And again, we like to look at the sins and we don't look at the source of the sin. We don't look at the sin behind the sin. And the reality is it, hatred is the sin behind the sin. Hatred is the sin behind murder. It's not your DNA. It's not, it's not how you were born. It's not how we evolved. It's not our animal instincts. It's not... It's not the moment, it's not the person, it's not, it's, it's our father and it's our heart and it's the world and it's a revelation of who we really are apart from God. If you have hatred towards somebody else, then, then, then you gotta question that. If you're not convicted of that, if that's not a problem, if you can live with that hatred, there's a problem. There's a disconnect there. And, and, and you need to go before the Lord for that. So, what is the answer to this? That's the question. As we, Wrap up this morning. What is the answer? Well, here's the answer. The remedy for hate is not love. Let me just pull that off of there. Let me just let that sink in for a second. The remedy for hatred is not love. Let's say again. The remedy, the solution for the problem of hatred towards other people is not love. It's not love. The world says... You hate people, you just need to love people. Why don't we just love everybody? We just need to love. Just love people. It's not the answer. 
But you can tell yourself you love, but you don't love it. That's, you're faking yourself. You're fooling yourself. A lot of people are running around trying to fool themselves and that they really love. They don't love people. They love themselves and they, they make them, they feel better about themselves because they love everybody equally. Well, first of all, when somebody's doing something destructive, hurtful, and you, and, and sinning, and you, it's clearly a sin against themselves, against God, and against society for that matter, it's not loving to accept that. If somebody wants to jump off a cliff, it's not loving to let them do what they want. They're free. I mean, well, who am I to tell them what to do? If they're driving down a road and there's there's the bridge is out and I just love them to their death, I'm not loving, okay? That's not loving. And the remedy for hatred is not love. It is life. It's a new life. The remedy for hate is not love, but new life. New life produces new love. New life produces new love. Or as we said in the introduction and the title of the message, new life equals new love. New life equals new love. Let me put it this way. There's another way of saying it. New life is revealed by a new love. No love reveals no life. There's last. There's three last thoughts that John gives to clarify this. How do we know? What, what, what does love look like? What does love in action look like? Verse 16 and 17 and 18. Let me read them for you and then I'll give you these points. Love in action. By this we know love. There's how you know love. What does it look like? Give me a picture. Give me a snapshot so I can understand what the legitimate love, you know, what it looks like. Okay, well, here's love. That By this we know love. That He laid His life down for us. Jesus laid His life down for us. And we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers, for other believers is what he's saying. So how do we know love? Because of Jesus. He gives us the he gives us the perfect example of it. It's laying his life down for others. So love is sacrificial towards the family of God. And I, and I don't think I don't think John's meaning only the family of God. I think he means you're loving those outside the family of God, too. OK, potential family members. Those that we want to see restored into a right relationship with God who they are connected to in a distant sense but don't really know. They need to be adopted into the family. So we love them too. Love is sacrificial towards the family of God. Secondly, love is generous. We're generous. Verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? I mean, if if you see somebody in legitimate need, okay, and and you have the ability to remedy their situation, to bless them, to help them, to be sacrificial towards them like Christ was, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. That's the gospel. Let me say it again. Though he was rich, Jesus, yet for our sakes he became poor, comes to the earth that we through his poverty on the earth might become rich. If you are blessed and you have the financial means to be able to help somebody and in like Jesus, you are motivated to give and to to lose some of your riches so that somebody else can can be elevated. Okay, then that's an evidence of this kind of love. Now, this is not income risk redistribution or wealth redistribution. This is not communism. This is not that's a sermon for another day. But this is somebody has a legitimate need. You see that need and you can bless them and help them. And because of your love for Christ, you want to serve 
them. Let me just, I don't have time to get into the whole thing, but I do remember there's one time a guy came to uh, a church that I was at in, in Memphis and, um, and he, he knocks on the door and he asks for some help and, um, and, he, and he says to the pastor, he says, can you help me? I need some financial help. Um, I, I need some money to buy some groceries or some food or something. And, um, and he's like, you know, well, I, I don't know if we really can help you right now because there have been several needs that have been church had, had helped people with. And the guy said, well, the Bible says that you're supposed to help me. The Bible commands you to help me. And so he said, okay, okay. And he goes and gets a rake. He comes back and he says, the Bible also says if you don't work, you don't eat. And so he hands him a rake and he says, you go rake those leaves out there and I'll give you some money. And we'll help you out. And so he makes the guy work. Because what he needed was to learn that he's not entitled to anything. But he needs to, the reason he's, you know, got issues is because he expects people to, to deliver him because he's not willing to do it himself. And so there was some wisdom in his, that pastor's response to that guy. But, but still, love is generous. When we are generous with our possessions, that's an evidence of love. You have the goods and you see your brother in need. Why would you not help them? Again, one of our core values, God over self, people over things. And people are more important than things. You're not going to be able to take the stuff with you to heaven. I mean, good night. Spend it on earth investing in other people that they might have new life and know Christ in the future, they might be in, in heaven with us so that we can we can make friends on this side of of eternity in this temporal little quick time we have here, just a little break on earth before we spend eternity in heaven. Let's get as many people on this side over to uh, to spend eternity with God and with Jesus in heaven. And so if we can take our financial means that God has given us and we can bless somebody and sacrifice for them and help them so that they would know Christ. That is awesome. That's evidence of. Biblical love and transforming love and being born again. So, sacrifice. Love is sacrificial. It's generous. And lastly, it is tangible and true. Verse 18. Little children, let us know, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. In, in the Greek, it actually literally translates, put your money where your mouth is. It doesn't really, but that's what he's saying. We're told to put our money where our mouth is. Love is tangible and true. You don't just love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. Indeed, in truth, we, we, we love because uh, Christ has loved us. We, we don't love to get God. Again, the remedy for hatred, the remedy for for not loving people rightly. The remedy is not love. It's life and we need new life. And if you don't have a giving heart, if you don't have a generous heart, if you don't have a heart that wants to invest in other people, invest in the things of God, it doesn't want to take the initiative to love other people that are difficult to love, which we all are, if we're honest. If you don't have that desire, you don't have that, then, then you need to repent of that and ask the Lord to help you see yourself as He sees you apart from Jesus, or as you really are apart from Jesus. See how unlovable and undeserving and unmeriting are you are, and, and then see how God has loved us with an unmerited love and an unconditional love and a sacrificial love. And once we realize how He has loved us, then we start looking at other people going, okay, I guess I could love them a little easier. Because He loved me when I was so unlovable. He adopted me in His family when I was the last one who needed to be in the family of God. I mean, I was a problem child. I had too much I came from a bad lineage. I had a bad background. I have bad DNA. I had bad this, bad that, bad. But he has placed new life in me and he has created me 
uh, recreating me to be somebody I would never have been apart from him. And so now I can love other people unconditionally. The remedy for hate is love, is, is new life, not love. And so where are you at in your relationship with Christ? Do you know Christ? I hope these things have either been, these, these have either been confounding and, and frustrating truths that we've been going over. And you're looking at these things, you're going, man, I don't even know any of this stuff. I mean, I, I, all I did, I mean, I just was in vacation Bible school. I was in fifth grade. I walked down the aisle. I raised my hand. I did the whatever. And I mean, why are you getting all complicated on us and giving us like, there's supposed to be evidence that we know Jesus. I mean, what, I just, man, I checked the box. That's my evidence. I got it. I got it written right here. It's in my Bible. Right here. Taped in the front. Okay, this is going to get me into heaven, right? No. This is not going to get you into heaven. It's awesome that you have that. It's great heritage. It's great that you have people investing in you. Awesome. Seeds planted. Spectacular. People, parents that brought you or, or released you or whatever to be able to go in and, and have some spiritual input in your life. Great. Wonderful. But it's not going to get you to heaven. But do you know Christ? Have you had new life deposited inside you? Has God's seed come into you to where you are a new person and you see the fruit of that because you don't continue in unrepentant sin, but you're battling, you're fighting. There's conviction. There's desire to know God, know his word, make him known, love others differently. All of those things are working in you. And so you haven't arrived, but you know, God is working in you. So be encouraged and be of good faith. Be encouraged. Repent, trust in Christ anew and afresh to continue the work that he began. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. But if you're listening to all this stuff and you're going, man, that stuff, I don't, I don't know any of that, man, that stuff not happening. I, I just checked the box. And I'm going to ask you, please, please, by God's grace, would you repent and trust in Christ and find new life this morning? And then for all of us, will we go with the truths we have learned and share and show them to other people that we could find the lost distant children of god those far from god don't even really hard they don't even know the god who they were created in his image may we be able to bring them to the father they could be adopted in the family that's our prayer father we ask you to bring clarity that your spirit would cut through the distractions the busyness the false assumptions the false truth the misunderstandings the lack of knowledge rooted in your truth and help us know, as you say in Romans, God, that we are your children, that your spirit would testify that we have a new spirit that's alive, that was dead, and we know you. God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that you would bring about conviction and you would reveal, that you would rip the veil off of their eyes, that they would see that they are in darkness and they need to run into the light. And for those of us, Father, that know you, but if we have not been pursuing you, and the evidence is just become too minimal, God, I pray that we would repent and we would look back to trust in you again and know that that salvation is not just about transformation at the moment of salvation, but it's ongoing change and transformation as we grow in our love, as we grow closer to our Father God, help us be able to answer the question truly. Who is our Father? And where and what is our love? And Father, may we go forth with that hope to others. Amen.